0: I want to read to you uh, this evening from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 12. Listen to the word of the Lord. But now thus says the Lord, "He, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is No Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. We sometimes sing a song during Advent season. Oh come, oh come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. At several points, that uh, song captures the themes of the text in front of us this evening. The story of the nation of Israel in the scriptures and it doesn't just capture the themes of the experience of Israel at one particular point in time in her journey but really and truly it captures the themes of the experience of Israel at many different points throughout her history. From, from the trials of her ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to, to the corporate trials of, of slavery and war and famine and exile, Israel had known what it means to mourn in lowly exile. Even uh, homing in on one of those experiences would confirm this truth. The exile, for instance, what was itself a tragedy of, of great proportions. And in the 6th century, Israel was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And over a span of, of a few years and, and, and three periods of forced removal of residents from the city, Jerusalem would be ruined The the temple, the place of God's worship, looted and destroyed. Young men from the royal family and from the noble families of the land would be torn from their parents and deported to a foreign land. Everyone would be forced to learn a foreign language and culture. Imagine the pain of those circumstances, though. Imagine the pain of those circumstances. Imagine the grief that mothers... And fathers felt for their children's future. The, the fear wives and husbands felt for what the Babylonians might do to either of them. The loss of homes, the loss of jobs, the loss of businesses, and other material blessings they had received from the Lord. Imagine, imagine, if you will, the anxiety of being under the supervision and control of a state that cared nothing about your well being. Behold, beyond, beyond beyond how well how your well-being might serve their interests imagine that imagine neighborhoods once filled with potential now blighted by ruin and then imagine imagine the added grief of coming to realize that all of this was coming upon you ultimately because of your own failures Unlike the Exodus story, the exile story is rooted not in a wicked leader who turned away from faithfulness to Israel, but uh, because he didn't recognize or remember the contributions to his kingdom of one of their leaders, namely Joseph. Rather, the exile story is rooted in the rebellion of God's people to their rightful leader, the Lord God himself. It was their corporate sin as a nation that had brought upon them the great suffering they were experiencing, a suffering communicated and felt in the words of Psalm 137 when we read this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion on the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. Israel's, Israel's story includes several crushing experiences like these. And, and as we listen, as we listen to just one of Israel's experiences, if our ears are tuned enough, we can actually hear our own story. If we tune our ears, we can hear in their morning our own mourning. We, we can hear in their experience something of the struggle of our own experience. We, we too have felt the dark cloud of exile, the loss of connection to place and purpose. Some of us have, have felt in the experiences of this life, experiences for some of us that create just as much pain as we can imagine the Israelites' experience in the exile. The loss of children, maybe for some of you. The loss of... A job or a home, the loss of identity, the loss of culture, the loss of dignity, the loss of purpose, meaning the loss of a future. Some of us have lived all our lives under the experience of being considered only worthy of care by the state when said care serves the state's interests. Some of us have lived in these experiences, yet all of us have known the experience of feeling and, in fact, being exiled from God because of our own sin. Indeed, there is no greater exile than that. If our, if our lives are bound up in God, as the scripture says, then to be separated from him, to be an exile in our relationship with him, is a greater darkness than all the dark experiences of life in this world. That exile is truly one that leaves us in a mournful state. But I want to draw your attention to two words, two words that change the whole set of circumstances of Israel's life and, and can change the circumstances of our lives as well. And those two words are but now, but now. That, that's how Isaiah uh, 43 begins. Isaiah 42, which had ended with the description of, of Israel being looted and plundered and, and burned by her trials, begins with those two words uttered by Israel's God and our God, but now, and that but now is the precursor to God's voice, the, the, the red carpet, if you will, rolled out before the star of the show steps on the scene. But now, thus says the Lord, I know what has been. I know what you've been through. I I see what trials have overtaken you. I see what damage your own sin has done to you. But now, but now I am about to speak over your circumstances. But now I am about to act on your behalf. But now I'm about to show you my salvation. Mourning and lowly exile is part of our experience in this fallen world. We're not going to get around that truth. Sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. Sin is damaging. Sin is oppressive. Sin is abusive. Sin is deadly. Mourning in lowly exile is going to come, yet so is God's but now. This is what it means that God is with us. This is what it means for Jesus to be our Emmanuel. It means that in the experiences of mourning in this world, the God who has already proclaimed his but now in Jesus We'll continue through Jesus to proclaim that but now of salvation in our lives. So what does that salvation look like for those of us who mourn? Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, I want to show you from this text, it looks like restored identity. Restored identity. God's salvation brings with it a restoration of who we are and a restoration of whose we are. The, the lowly exile of which the songwriter speaks, the experience of being disconnected, battered, bruised, or crushed by the circumstances of life which Israel found herself in, whether because of our own sin or the sins of others, often brings with it a loss of a sense of identity. It can leave us asking the question, who am I? The, the waters, the rivers, the, the fires of life that Isaiah speaks about in, in, in this chapter, speak, uh, uh, speaks of in this text, can leave us doubting. Our own identity. In other words, the hard stuff of life, brothers and sisters, can be image defacing. Meaning it can distort the truth about who we are and it can distort the truth about whose we are. If you've been through anything in this life, then you know what I am talking about. Personal failures. That costs you a job or relationships or freedom or standing can leave you wondering who you are and whose you are. The failures of others towards you, abusive language, violence, racism, threats, persecution and the like can leave you wondering who you are. This is why the coming of God's salvation brings with it a reminder, a restatement of the truth of who we are. A restatement of the truth of whose we are. When when God speaks and acts on our behalf, he does... He does so by first reminding us of who we are to him. Listen again to what God says to his people in Isaiah 43, 1. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And again in verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Just came to tell somebody this evening, (laughs) struggling with the question of who am I, and whose am I, that the same words spoken to the people of Israel long ago are spoken to you today. Your your, your location as it regards the circumstances of this life have not changed your status. The waters, the rivers, the floods, that that is the stuff you're going through in this life, cannot undo what God has done. The words spoken against you and the evil actions done against you cannot undo what God has done. People can talk about you. (laughs) They can lie on you. They can persecute you. They can mistreat you. They can abandon you. They can do all manner of evil against you, but they cannot they they cannot take away who you are in Christ because they didn't create you. They didn't form you. They didn't call you by name. You are not theirs. You are God's redeemed and his name bearers, his possession, his beloved, his precious ones, his honored ones, his sons, his daughters you say but pastor pastor tony you don't know me (laughs) you don't you don't know my circumstances you don't know what i used to be you're right i don't know but god knows he knew who israel was before he chose her he knew all her sins and all her misery and yet he loved her not because of anything good in her but because of his own goodness and grace god knew you before he redeemed you before he placed his name on you before he made you his possession, before he loved you, before he declared you precious and honored, before he made you a son or daughter. If your faith is in Jesus, your identity has nothing to do with your goodness, but rather with the goodness of God towards you. Our goodness is our derived goodness. Our worth is a derived worth. Our value is a derived value. It is God who has made us precious. It is God who has made us honored. It is God who has made us valued. It is God who has made us his image and nobody can change that not even us (laughs) the only thing we can do is fail to receive the truth of what god has declared and that is the tragedy of those who don't know the lord who don't believe in his son they go about rooting their identity in other things when they could know the joy of the identity that god gives to all who trust in him all who trust in his son I just want to tell you this evening, you are not what your lowly exile experience says to you. Whatever that lowly exile experience is in your life, your faith is in Christ. If it's in Christ, it does not define who you are. You're not what folk on social media say about you. You're not whatever evil words are thrown out at you on those platforms, whatever labels people try to place on you in that world. You are not what those words or labels say about you. You're not what your abusers say about you. You're not less than human. You're not ugly. You're not less valuable. You're not undeserving of care. Church, we are not what the world says to us or about us. We are not what Satan says about us. We are not what our sinful hearts say about us. We are in Christ what God has said about us. You are my redeemed. You are my precious ones. You are my honored ones. You are my sons. You are my daughters through faith in Jesus. We are in Christ what God has said about us. And so the call is to receive God's identifiers as the true statement about who we are. We are those who have been created, those who have been formed, those who have been redeemed, those who have been loved, those who have been honored and saved by Almighty God. We are his. We belong to him. We are his very own possession. So throw out out all the other identifiers that are placed on you from the outside. This is who you are if your faith is in Jesus Christ. So restored identity is one of the things that comes to us in our lowly exile, but also restored presence. God's salvation brings restoration to who we are and whose we are, but it also brings the experience of the restoration of God's presence. In addition to the question of who we are and whose we are, the hard circumstances of this life, the the lowly exile that we experience at times in this life can also leave us asking, where is God? Where is God? David, speaking to this very question, ponders in Psalm 13, which which you just heard read. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? When we experience that lowly exile, those hard circumstances, we do sometimes ponder the very question that David asked. We cry out from our souls, God, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? And this cry is also found on our, our lips corporately. It's, it's the cry at, time, uh, at times of oppressed people groups of young men and women trapped in abusive circumstances, of elderly people abandoned by family and friends in the final years of their life, of orphans and widows and immigrants. It's a cry born of fear, a fear that without someone's help they will be swallowed up, we will be swallowed up by the circumstances of life, swallowed up by our enemies, swallowed up by death itself. Indeed, when God speaks in Isaiah 43 of waters, and floods and fire. He doesn't speak of his people sailing on top of the water or canoeing on top of the rivers or standing around the fire. No, the path of God's people in this world, the path of those who have been named by God as his own is the same path of our Lord Jesus. It's through the waters. It's through the rivers. It's through the fire. Indeed, the very path of helping others who, who we find in these circumstances, even when we are not in them ourselves, requires a movement through the difficulties. Yet pay close attention to God's words here to his people who endure those waters, those rivers, those fires. He doesn't say, I will watch over you in these things. He doesn't say, I will pay close attention to what you are going through. He doesn't say, I will, I will throw you a lifeboat or a life vest or, or, give, or give you fire-retardant clothing. No, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And again in verse 5, fear not, for I am with you. And I want you to understand something today, brothers and sisters. God being with us is not rooted in our feelings. There are times when we have a powerful feeling of God's presence with us. Times where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is walking with us in the mess and muddle of life. However, there are times when that feeling is not there. Times when it seems like God has forgotten us. Yet God's presence is not rooted in our feelings. It's rooted in God's character. As Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he he said And will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Even when you don't feel, God is there working. Even when you don't see evidence of his presence, he is there working. Even when you don't believe it, he is there working. How has the church made it this far? (laughs) With all its inner battles and struggles and all its outer battles and struggles. How have we made it? Well, we've made it because God's salvation brings with it his presence. We've made it because of those words spoken in verse 2 and repeated in verse 5. For I am with you. The call here is also to trust what God has said over what those outside of you may say. What even your own heart may say. The psalmist who I refer to above in Psalm 13 does not remain in that place of questioning God's presence. He starts there and he's honest about what he feels. He's honest about his circumstances. And we too can be honest about feeling God's absence at times or in times of crisis and hardship. But we must not stay there. We must trust God's words over our own and ask. The psalmist says... This in Psalm 13, after after wrestling with the sense of God's absence, he says this, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He turns not to what he feels, not to what those on the outside are saying. Rather, he turns to the steadfast love of God. He turns to what he knows about the character of God. We are called to the same trust. Recalled as we examine our past, to remember the steadfast love of God, to remember the ways he has shown himself faithful to us, and to rely on that same character, that same presence of his steadfast love in our present circumstances. To believe what we say, what the world says, to not believe what we say or what the world says, but what God says. I don't know about you, but I want to believe what God says, that he is with me in the waters, in the floods, in the fire. Amen, people of God. Restored, restored identity, restored presence. What else do we receive in our lowly exile? Restored calling. God's salvation brings restored identity, restored presence, but it also brings a restored calling. In the scriptures, the nation of Israel is called out to display God's glory among the nations. This truth can be seen at, at, at the very point at which God established Israel as a nation. In Exodus 19:5 and 6, we read this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, these words were were in keeping with God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations of the earth through him and his descendants. That Israel as a nation had failed to walk consistently and faithfully in this calling is the testimony of the whole scripture. And yet despite this failure, God did not remove his calling of witness bearing from his church, from his people Indeed, when Christ, the true witness of God, came into the world, when when he had finished bearing uh, faithful testimony to God through his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave, he gathered his disciples, the the new Israel, together and he proclaimed to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is who we are as the church we are witnesses of almighty God in this world. But here's the thing. Just like Israel was inconsistent and at times unfaithful in her calling, so has the church been at points in her time in her history. Some of us feel that inconsistency and unfaithfulness is on display in parts of the church in our own day. But here's the thing. In calling us out to be witnesses, God took this inconsistency into consideration. In Isaiah 42, God says this about his people beginning in verse 18. He says, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord. He sees many things but does not observe them. His ears are open but he does not hear. Despite knowing God's work of salvation, his justice, his righteousness, God's people are sometimes blind and deaf to it. Blind and deaf to their own need for it. Blind and deaf to the cries of those in their midst who need it and to those around them who need it. Yet watch how God's salvation works and calls us back to this calling he has placed on us. In, in, the, in the last verses of our text this morning, we, we witnessed something of a, of a courtroom scene in which God takes on the idols of the world. He calls for the nations to gather into the courtroom and he, he calls uh, on them to prove that the gods they serve are really gods. He, he calls them to bring forth witnesses who can testify to the idol's power to predict the future and then fulfill that prediction when the time comes. And of course, the, the, the point is, they can't because, because the gods of the nations are, are, are no gods at all. But God has witnesses. God has Witnesses. He he has witnesses who can bear testimony to the truth about him. Yet, yet listen to how he brings his witnesses out. In that that verse, we read this. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf, yet have ears. And and considering Isaiah 42, uh, this is likely a a reference to Israel. God's people sent out by him to testify about him in the world. Now, you might think, uh, or you might ask, why in the world would God bring out his witnesses in this way? Like, why would he bring out his witnesses calling them deaf and blind? The answer is this. The call to bear witness to God in this world does not rest first and foremost on what we say about God, but rather it rests on what God himself has done among us as his people. It doesn't rest first and foremost on what we say about God, but what God himself has done among his people. The call to bear witness rests on what he has done. Our testimony, brothers and sisters, is not that we found God. Our testimony is that God found us. He found us. Our our testimony is not, not that we were the greatest, but the least. Our testimony is not that we were the strongest but the weakest our testimony is the testimony of blind and deaf folk whom God through his mighty acts of salvation calls us to see and calls us to hear our testimony is summed up in what God has done it's summed up in the truth of verse 12 spoken by God himself i declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange god among you and you are my witnesses not because of what you say about me but because I declared, and I proclaimed, and I saved. We are his witnesses because of what he has done and what he does among us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we need not fear. Even the shaking that is going on in our day in the church the exposing of our sins, the revelation of our deafness and blindness will not lead to God abandoning his church or removing his calling from us to be his witnesses. It will lead instead to God's work in Christ of declaring, saving, and proclaiming. It will lead us into a more faithful testimony as the world watches our God make his name known among us and through us. Go read the biblical narrative. God's people fail, God comes and exposes the failure, then works his salvation among them. And then calls them to declare that salvation that he has worked among them in the world. That's the pattern. It's the pattern. So you'll excuse my incorrect English here, but we ain't witnesses because we get it right all the time. We are witnesses because of God's salvific work. Among us. And you know this. That work finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who by his Spirit works this salvation in us and among us to the glory of God. There's this wonderful statement in Psalm 51 that's instructive for us in applying this point to our own lives. Psalm 51, David confesses his sin to God. And he says this He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with the willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And, and, And when you read that, you're thinking, how can David talk about teaching transgressors and sinners when he himself has just transgressed and sinned? It's because the exposure of David's sin was meant to do exactly what it did to move David to repentance to turn his heart and his life back to God. And in turning him away from his sin and back to God, God was demonstrating the work of his salvation in David's life, thus enabling David to change the path he was going down and then turn and declare to people what God had done. And to tell them that the God who turned him around can turn them around as well. Amen, people of God. We don't need to be afraid of God exposing the sin of his witnesses. <laughs> the exposure is meant to lead to repentance, which is a work of God, by which he, through the Spirit, does that powerful work of turning us away from our sin and back to God. And that salvific work is then meant to be proclaimed to those around us that they might know God saves. God saves. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. He has come. God has come in Jesus' And he has ransomed his captive people. Amen, people of God. And Jesus, as he sits enthroned beside the Father, continues to work by the Spirit to ransom his captive people from among all the nations of the earth. And what does that salvation, what does that ransom look like? It looks like the restoration of our identity, the restoration of his presence among us. It looks like a restoration of our calling to be his witnesses in this world. May God comfort. All our mourning and all our exile experiences in this life through these truths. And may he do it for his own glory in Jesus name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now that as we have heard your word, as we have all sat under the authority of your word, we pray that you, Lord, would help us to apply these truths to our lives. I pray that we as your people in all of our lowly exile experiences would know that you are the God who saves. And that that salvation, when it comes, Lord, it it, it reminds us of who we are and whose we are. When When that salvation comes, Lord, it reminds us that you are present. That you are faithful to your word. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. And when that salvation comes, it reminds us, it reminds us that we have been called out by you to be your witnesses witnesses in this world not because we are great witnesses in and of ourselves but because you are at work among us to display the greatness of your salvation as you expose our sin and call us to repentance and faith the world will look in and see that there is a god who saves so i pray enable us enable us lord god by the power of your spirit to put this truth To lay it up, as I said, Lord, to believe it, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.